Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We are returning to Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, which is a prayer, as I mentioned, of transition. It's a prayer of motivation. It's a prayer of mobilization. This prayer in Ephesians 3 serves as a bridge connecting two halves of Paul's letter. These are two distinct halves. In chapters 1 through 3, you have what Paul wants you to believe. In chapters 4 through 6, you have what Paul knows, the way Paul knows you need to behave. In chapters 1 through 3, you receive the indicatives, which are the statements of fact. And in chapters 4, 5, and 6, you receive the imperatives, which are the statements of command. You could look at these two halves and think, on the first half is Christian orthodoxy. And the second half is Christian orthopraxy. So the question would be, why write the doctrines in the first three chapters and then the duties of our faith in the last three chapters? Why do this in this order? Well, the reason why is because knowing God's sovereignty and plan gives us identity and purpose, motivating us for service. We need to have God's sovereignty and his plan first tucked away into our heart so that we can understand our identity and purpose and then be launched into doing the good works that God prepared from beforehand that we should walk in. Paul declares we are God's elect in chapter 1, that we are his adopted, chosen children, redeemed through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. As a result, we have unity with all of mankind in the church through the blood of Christ, and we know our job. Individually and collectively, As brothers and sisters in Christ, we must proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of our darkness into his marvelous light. That is your treasure. That is your privilege. That is your joy if you've been called and elected and chosen by God to walk in newness of life in Christ, in the church. Ephesians 2.10 calls us God's master craftsmanship, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We've been given eternal life in Christ. In addition to all that we need for life and godliness while we yet live. And the question before us today as we continue to look at Paul's prayer is this. What motivates you to pursue the good works which God prepared beforehand? What motivates you to grow in strength in your faith? What motivates you to greater love? obedience and worship of God, and what motivates you to greater knowledge of Christ? What thoughts captivate your mind, seize your heart, and compel your will to live for the fullness of him who died for you to pay for your sins? What motivates you to understand the love of Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says this to the Corinthians, For the love of Christ controls us, Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And it is the course with all of us that you have already in your life spent far too many years living for yourself. What a joyful thing in life to know the love of God and the plan of God and to be able to live for him who died and rose again on your behalf, that you might have eternal life. The love of Christ must control us at Community Bible Church. The love of Christ must captivate our minds, seize our hearts, and compel our will. The love of Christ is our greatest motivation. Consider what can be accomplished when the love of Christ controls 
compels and motivates your faith. Consider with me, 500 years ago today, 500 years ago today, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V summoned a man named Martin Luther, a German monk, to appear, to appear before him and the whole host of Roman Catholic leadership at the Diet of Worms. And the kids love to say that because it sounds like you get a snack right there with stuff that's outside growing in the ground naturally. The aim of the assembly in Worms, Germany, was to get Martin Luther to recant of his anti-Roman Catholic views and to, or to be branded a heretic and potentially face death, the same kind of death burning at the stake that was faced 100 years before by John Huss. What views about Roman Catholicism did Luther hold that were problematic for Rome, for which he needed to recant? Luther saw clearly the abuses in the Roman system. Popes and cardinals living lives of luxury financed by the sale of indulgences. The abuses of leadership and the sale of indulgences and the receiving of the money, which was the offering of the church, were being used to live lavish lifestyles, were being used to finance lives of indulgence. Rome had abandoned the centrality of the word of God and salvation in Christ alone, following instead their own traditions, and no longer were they found representing the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Roman Catholicism had run away from God by running away from Scripture and manufacturing a salvation that could be purchased. That's disgusting. The proceeds from that purchased salvation manufactured by the Roman Catholic Church funded decadent and lavish lives of these Roman Catholic elites. Consider the fullness of this moment in history, April 18th, 1521. Worms, Germany, was full to capacity with visitors at the expectation of the arrival of Martin Luther. The assembly hall where they met was full of Roman Catholic leaderships and its guests, all here to listen to Luther recant. The atmosphere was full of tension as failure to recant would result in Luther's death. The table in front of Luther was full of his works for which he had been summoned so that he would recant. This moment in history was full with the need for truth in the face of pressure and lies. What filled Martin Luther? How would Luther respond to such Roman Catholic-induced pressure? Luther's moment of truth came when Johann Eck asked the question, Martin Luther, will you recant? To which Luther responded, quote, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Amazement overcame the assembly. Where did this man get such faith? Where did he get such courage? How could he take such a bold stand for Christ and for scriptures against these men, the most powerful men in the world, the Roman Catholic Church? What filled Luther? Answer. Luther's heart was filled with faith and the love of Christ, strengthened by the Spirit to the fullness of God. Who prayed Ephesians 3's prayer for Martin Luther. He was living it out on this day. 
Christ lived in him and powered him to this good work prepared from beforehand, from all eternity past, to pull the church out of the failure of Roman Catholicism and send us down to be Protestants. You sit here today, not Roman Catholics, because of a man named Martin Luther who took a stand, filled to the fullness of God. There he stood in the glory of God. He could do no other. No one is asking for you to denounce Pope Francis. Many Roman Catholics do that themselves. Yet God is looking for your faithfulness. That's what he wants from you. God wants your faithfulness. He's looking for you to be motivated in faith that he has given to you. He's looking for you to trust him fully and take responsibility for the faith that he plants into you like a seed. He plants faith as a seed into you. And your job is to do the tilling of the soil and the watering and allow him to add the increase. It's a marvel, brothers and sisters. We as Christians have been given so much in Christ. How much of what we've been given in Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, how much of that do you put to use every day? Boy, we just feel like failures in the light of the gifts that we've been given. It's amazing how easy it is to neglect a gift that has been given to you so freely. And yet the same Holy Spirit who lives in us today strengthened Martin Luther 500 years ago to confront the Roman Catholic authorities and launch the Protestant Reformation. The same Holy Spirit strengthened Paul while he was chained to a guard in a jail cell in Rome to write prayers. This prayer today before us in Ephesians chapter 3. This is a prayer of motivation. This prayer is meant to motivate your faith. We must see in it that God's plan is to sovereignly work in us, strengthening us in our faith through his spirit to know the love of Christ that we might arrive at what he says in the text is the fullness of God. That's his expectation for us. Our faith demands responsibility. And we were never left in this faith that's been given to us. We were never left alone. That's what this prayer shares with us. Take responsibility and you were never left alone. He would never do that to us. He's given it to us. Let's read Paul's prayer of motivation from verses 14 through 21 in chapter 3. And we'll circle back around today and we'll pick up where we left off teaching through this prayer. And we'll look at verses 17 through 19 where Paul makes his second and third prayer requests. But I want to read the whole context to you today, the whole of this prayer. Paul says, read with me, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Charles Spurgeon says, Faith is the queen bee. Faith is the queen bee, he says. You may get temperance, love, hope, and all of these other bees into the hive, but the main thing is to get simple faith in Christ. 
and all the rest will come after it. Get the queen bee of faith and all the other virtues will attend her. Such is the case with Paul's prayer where he makes three requests that act like a staircase ascending into the Trinitarian heavenly fullness of God. The results are sequential. First, faith. Then, love and fullness. Like the rungs of a ladder or like the links in a chain. In our text today, Paul links three ascending requests for Trinitarian fullness so that we might be filled with faith and love. That's where we're going today. I need to state that again for you. Paul links in the text, he links three ascending requests for Trinitarian fullness so that we might be filled with faith and love. What three ascending requests for Trinitarian fullness does Paul make? Paul requests our strengthening in the power by the Spirit, number one. Paul requests, second, our overflowing in the love of Christ. And Paul requests, third, our filling with the fullness of God. Strengthening in the power of the Spirit, overflowing in the love of Christ, Filling with the fullness of God. That's the order. That's a staircase in Paul's prayer. Last week, we studied point number one in your notes. Strengthening in the power of the Spirit in verses 16 through 17. Our faith will be motivated and strengthened today by considering Paul's second and third requests. Paul's request for our overflowing in the love of Christ. And Paul's request for our filling with the fullness of God. To be sure, faith is a pivot point in this prayer. Request number one for Holy Spirit strengthening is aimed at making our faith grow and move. To get us to engage, to take responsibility for our faith, to be motivated, and to know that we are not in this alone. Request number one, strengthening in the power of the Spirit, is the mixer and the blender of these two divine realities. God's sovereignty over everything in this life. And man's responsibility to God when God places expectations on man. Sovereignty and responsibility perfectly blended in the opening verses of this prayer in the request. Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You do it, and God does it. You see that? These two realities go perfectly together. There's no fight. There's no contention here. You and God in harmony, working together, sovereignty and responsibility, not enemies, perfectly friends. This is God's expectation. This is how he designed the plan. So this is our joy to live, working out our salvation with fear and trembling and watching God sovereignly work in and through us. Our faith increases by continually trusting in God and his promises. We are actively making room for Christ in our inner man through faith as we take our thoughts captive and make them conform to truth and obey Christ. Robert Munger was a Presbyterian minister who passed away at age 90 in 2001. In a work that he wrote entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home, he says, It's difficult for me to think of a higher privilege than to make Christ a home in my heart, to welcome, to serve him, to please him, to fellowship with him there. Robert imagines what it would be like to show Christ hospitality in each of the rooms in the home of his heart. For instance, in the library, which is the study of his mind, you would say, how embarrassed would he be for Christ to gaze at the books on his shelf and the pictures on the wall? In the dining room, the room of appetites and desires, how embarrassed would Robert be at the meal that he was able to offer his master when all of his favorite foods that are in the cabinets and in the refrigerator include money 
and academics and prestige. From room to room, how eager would Robert be to share his home with Christ, and better yet, to have Christ come in, make a home, and make remodeling suggestions in that home. Even cleaning out that disgusting closet of all those sinful things that nobody ever wants to talk about. Brothers and sisters, how is Christ's remodeling project going in your own hearts? What rooms have you let him in to see? And yet, what great joy awaits all of us if we actively pursue Christ engaging with us in a remodeling project of our hearts, room by room. What would such remodeling lead to? What would be the benefit? What would be the result? Everybody's so concerned these days about buying a home and doing all the remodeling and, and catching up with the Joneses. That's, don't do that, by the way. <laughs> Remodeling homes, chasing after the affairs and the things of this world, making sure that you sit on this quality toilet, making sure that you do your dishes in this quality sink. What about what's going on in here? What, what about this remodeling project? You spend more time at Home Depot than you do in the church. I don't know that that's you. <laughs> Maybe that is. It's convicting. It should really give us pause to think who's doing remodeling where and where do we spend our time. Paul has eyes to see the result of Christ making a home in our hearts by faith. Specifically this, that if Christ comes in and does the remodeling in your heart by faith, you get to know the love of Christ. There's all kinds of joy in knowing the love of Christ. That's what's in his prayer. This takes us to the second prayer request of Paul. The second prayer request of Paul. I would, I would call it number two in your notes. It's kind of acting like number one today, but the overflowing in love of Christ that needs to happen in our hearts. Paul requests our overflowing in the love of Christ. This is point number two. I'm going to call it point number two. You know what I mean if you're following along. Paul requests our overflowing in the love of Christ. Read with me from verses 17 through 19, and let's look at this overflowing in the love of Christ that Paul expects, that he requests from God for us. Let's understand that Christ remodeling our hearts happens because of strong and growing faith, which leads to overflowing in the knowledge of the love of Christ. The first step in the staircase of Trinitarian fullness is spirit strengthening, resulting in greater faith. The second step to Trinitarian fullness is knowing the love of Christ. Paul prays to the Father in verse 17. He says, Father, grant these believers to be strengthened by the Spirit and power. To be strong in faith so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Do you know the love of Christ? Does the love of Christ motivate you? Early in the 19th century, Napoleon Bonaparte's French army opened a Spanish prison that was used during the Spanish Inquisition of the 18th century. In that Spanish prison, Napoleon's French army found the remains of a man in prison for his faith in Christ. How could they tell that this man was in prison for his faith in Christ? All that remained of the man were his bones heaped on the dirt floor in an underground dungeon, the chain around his ankles still attached to the wall. The wall bore witness to the prisoner's testimony of Christ. How so? On the wall, the man had carved a cross. 
and surrounded the cross with four words. In Spanish, the prisoner had written above the cross, height. Below the cross, depth. To the right of the cross, width. And to the left of the cross, length. This prisoner, suffering and dying in a dark dungeon, was overflowing in the love of Christ. How can we be overflowing in the love of Christ? We need to make three observations that lead to overflowing in the love of Christ. Let's do that together now. Let's make three observations that lead to our overflowing in the love of Christ. Observation number one. Let's observe the foundation for overflowing in love. The foundation for overflowing in love. To be overflowing in the love of Christ requires a strong foundation. Christ in your heart by faith is the strong foundation, according to verse 17, which Paul pictures here with two mixed metaphors, one botanical and the other architectural. He says, you then, being rooted and grounded in love. The first of these word pictures suggests that Christ is good soil into which your spiritual roots must dive deep to get their nutrition. It should take your mind to Jesus' parable of the soils, where he tells of a sower of seeds who went out to sow his seed. And we know that the only seed which yielded a crop was the seed which fell into the good soil. Christ alone is the good soil into which you need to plant and dive your spiritual roots. The second metaphor pictures the laying of a foundation, where again, Jesus' words should come to your mind as well. He spoke about foundations at the end of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, saying in Matthew 7, 24, the wise man, we're going to sing this song, right? The wise man built his house upon, like you said, rock, that's right. Matthew 7, 24. Further, we know Acts chapter 4, verse 11. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by the builders who became the chief cornerstone. Okay, if Jesus is in your heart, dwelling, remodeling, and making his home because of your faith, then you are standing on a solid foundation. You are, as the text says, rooted and grounded in love, which allows you to understand aspects of the love of Christ that you never could have ever before. This leads to our second observation. Observation number two, let's observe. The collaboration of overflowing in love. The collaboration for overflowing in love. What is a collaboration? Teamwork. Friends, where do we see a collaboration? Where do we see teamwork? Friends required to overflow in love. We see teamwork required when Paul asks that you, verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. May be able to comprehend with all the saints. Paul asks for believers to have ability, to have power, to be able. Able to do what? To comprehend. The Greek word here is katalambano, which means to seize or to capture. As in seizing of cities or capturing of armies. Over time, this word came to mean comprehend or grasp or understand. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was given a vision of a great sheet descending from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals on it, including pigs for bacon, which were forbidden to him. And he was told, get up, Peter, kill and eat. He came to understand and grasp what the vision meant, saying in chapter 10, verse 34 of Acts, I most certainly understand Catalambano. I most certainly understand now that God is not one who shows partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. 
Not only are we to understand that God shows no partiality to any person based off any kind of status. There's no partiality with God. Not only are we to understand that further, if you are going to grasp and comprehend the love of Christ, you are going to do it in collaboration and teamwork with a bunch of other sinners saved by grace like all of us. That's required of you. The text says, be able to comprehend with all the saints, plural, the holy ones, the holy ones of God. Is it possible to know the love of Christ apart from knowing the love of Christ with the saints? The text says no. Is it possible to know the love of Christ on your own? To know the fullness of the love of Christ? Are you going to say yes to that question? To know the, the fullness of the love of Christ on your own? Not a chance. Our faith is meant to be lived in community. We are spiritual bricks stacked into a spiritual temple called the church. There are no single brick spiritual temples. I think about that prisoner in that Spanish jail cell that was found by Napoleon. I think about that guy. He was by himself. Was he by himself? Was he by himself? Who was praying for him? His church. His church was praying for him. He was not alone. Consider the whole force of Paul's letter. It is focused on equipping the church. Jesus is the head of the church, chapter 1, verse 22. The manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church, chapter 3, verse 10. God will find his glory in the church, chapter 3, verse 21. Husbands are to love their wives just like Christ loves the church, chapter 5, verse 25. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, chapter 5, verse 29. Collaboration is required to comprehend the love of Christ. We see it as well here when Paul uses his favorite preposition, the word soon, which means together with, over ten times in three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3. He uses this preposition to cause you to see that you are bound, wound, tied, twisted up together with Christ and all of his saints. I love that. We're not in this life alone. We have a vertical relation that we're tied and twisted together with, and we have horizontal relationships that we're tied and twisted together with. John Stott says, it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God, all the saints together, Jew and Gentile, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, all with their varied backgrounds and experiences. Amen. Kent Hughes says, we can only come to a better, fuller understanding of his love in community. Hence, Community Bible Church. This happens when we sit under the preaching of his word, we study his word, share our knowledge of God's love with each other, and observe it in our brothers and sisters. Only in coming together and meeting in church will all the saints, with all the saints will you grasp and comprehend the fullness of the love of Christ. You will do this both intellectually and experientially. Let me show you how. This brings us to our third observation. Observation number three. Let's observe the expectations of overflowing in love. The expectations of overflowing in love. Paul has expectations. Paul's prayer is stated in terms of possibility. That you may comprehend. That you may be filled. It gives the idea of maybe uncertainty. No, there's certainty there. Remember the context in which Paul is praying. Paul knows what is possible in the Trinitarian power of God. The question is not, will God let us know the love of Christ? No, that's not the question at all. The question is, do you know what God expects of you? That's the question. Listen to what Paul prayer, what, what his prayer expects of us in verses 18 and 19 when he says, verses 18 and 19, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints 
What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That is a high expectation, brothers and sisters. The language of dimension and measurement does not refer to categories of Christ's love. Rather, as John MacArthur says, they simply suggest love's vastness, love's completeness. And the language of dimension is, however, something we can ponder intellectually. Intellectually, we can consider the breadth of Christ's love, spanning the vast separation that existed between Jew and Gentile, reconciling them together in one new man in chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. We can consider the length of Christ's love, which stretches back before time began, before the creation of the world into eternity past, when we were chosen and elected and predestined by God to be his adopted children, chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 11. The height of Christ's love we can consider, which takes us into the heavenly places themselves where we have been raised and seated together with Christ, chapter 2, verse 6, being given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places by him in Christ, in chapter 1, verse 3. And we can consider the depth of Christ's love, dropping down, 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 deep into the Marianas Trench of human depravity, where he had to come and rescue every one of us because of the sin and death in which we lived. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. John Stott says, The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all of mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach to the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. Intellectually, we must comprehend the love of Christ to the greatest degree that our minds are able. And more than degree... We must comprehend the love of Christ with specificity. Let's talk intellectually about specificity. Not all believers in Jesus Christ are choosing to know him with specificity these days. You, we, must know him with specificity. What do I mean by specificity? Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. You know these names, Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty? Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty wrote a song together that we love to sing here called In Christ Alone. They wrote this in 2001. Consider the lyrics these brothers put together with a strong Irish melody. The first verse of which ends with these words. Here in the love of Christ I stand. Verse 2. In Christ alone, who took on flesh... Fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. This is the love of Christ with specificity. Brothers and sisters, this is high theology in this song. What you just heard was the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement put to lyrics. Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God. So the question goes like this. Why then? Why, in 2013, eight years ago, 
did a 15-member committee of the Presbyterian Church USA ask permission to change these lyrics for use in their personal church hymnal from the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified? Question. Is the love of God magnified in the removal of the wrath of God? No. The wrath of God, brothers and sisters, the wrath of God amplifies the love of Christ. Intellectually, this is specificity on how we must know the love of Christ. He suffered the penalty. He stood in your place. If you don't know Jesus Christ here today, let me tell you this. The wrath of God is set on you right now. The whole world wants you to believe and understand John 3.16, John 3.16, and I believe absolutely every verse of John 3.16, but I hate it when people rip that verse out of context. If you don't know the wrath of God is set on you right now, continue to read verses 17 and verses 18 right after John 3.16, and know that if you don't follow Christ, trust Christ, repent and believe, the wrath of God is set on you now. And hell is set before you. But the beauty of that cross is just exactly what's been explained. And what we're going to read here in Isaiah 53. Intellectually, with specificity, we must know that he suffered the penalty. He took our place. This message that we will read right now was prophesied 700 years before it happened by Isaiah. He prophesied this 700 years. You're in Isaiah 53. Read with me penal substitutionary atonement from verses 4 through 6. Isaiah records the voice of the Jews. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken of God and afflicted, smitten of God. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. Don't stop reading with me there. Look at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Brothers and sisters, we are his offspring. Christ was crushed and scourged for all of his believers so that he could make the church. And he is risen. He endured the Father's wrath, and brothers and sisters, you know as we celebrated just weeks ago, he is alive, and that is our great hope as well. This is the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, as seen in the fact that even some Christians reject this knowledge. But there is another love of Christ that surpasses knowledge as well. Turn in your Bibles to John 14. John 14 is where I'd like you to turn now. Intellectually, you must pursue the love of Christ with specificity. Additionally, experientially together in the church, you must know the love of Christ as well. In John chapter 10 verses or in John 13 through 17, Jesus records 
Jesus' Last Supper is recorded by John. In John 13 through 17, we see the night of his betrayal. When I think about Jesus last night on earth and all that he says in these chapters from 13 through 17, I can't help but call this the night of glory. It is Christ's night of glory. And in as much as it is his night of glory, it is also his night of love. This is the night of maximum love. The text even says that. I want to show that to you. John chapter 13, verse 1, John says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the uttermost, to the end. He loved them to infinity, is what the text says. In the context of his quickly approaching death by crucifixion, which he clearly shared with his men multiple times, look at chapter 15, verse 13. Jesus tells them in this context, In this context of I'm going to die by crucifixion, he says to them, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And in preparation to build his church, Jesus commanded these men, his his disciples, his apostles to be. In John 13, 34 and 35, he commanded them how the church was supposed to live. This is preparation for the church, John 13, 34 and 35. These men would lead the church And he commanded them this way. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, even my love for one another. If these men are called to build Jesus' church, and they are told to love like Jesus Christ himself, then what should Christians experience in the church, brothers and sisters? What should we experience here? The love of Christ. It should be experienced in the church. You're in John 14. Let's read verses 12 through 15. John 14, 12 through 15. Let's read Jesus' words together now and consider experientially that the love of Christ is known through the works of believers. John says, and Jesus says, as John recorded in John 14, 12, truly, truly, passionately, I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Did you catch that in the text? Believers in Christ will do greater works than Jesus. Does that scare you? Not in quality, in quantity. What does this mean for us then, brothers and sisters? It means that the love of Christ is on display, experientially, every day in his church. Right here today, right now, in Community Bible Church, where you sit, you are getting the love of Christ. Where from? from the most underappreciated servants of the church, the sound team. They labor away, and you only hear about them when the noise goes off. Where else are you receiving the love of Christ in your midst today? The hospitality team made sure that you had a warm cup of coffee and donuts on the way out the door. The children's ministry is lovingly caring and serving your children, teaching them right now across the hallway. Three-year-olds and five-year-olds to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
The prayer team met earlier and prayed for the needs of the church just like Jesus asked. Ask anything in my name, I'll do it. They did. They sat right there and they asked for you. They petitioned God for you. They'll show up on Monday and they'll do it again. You're welcome to join us. On Monday also the cleaning team comes in and on Friday we have servants that use their hands and feet to prepare a place for God's people to meet. Thursdays, women's Bible study. Who could tell me that the love of Christ is not here on Thursdays between 8 and noon? And the men's breakfast yesterday? We had some great food. We had some incredible fellowship. Sharing salvation from our doctrinal statement together. I got to pray with five brothers, and they took my prayer requests. And some of those men have some big needs. I prayed for them, and they prayed for me. We prayed together. That's the love of Christ. Experientially in the church, you know the love of Christ. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, you will know the love of Christ experientially because believers are doing the love of Christ. Show up early. Stay late. Put away tables today. Move chairs. Sign up to serve in the ministry. Not only do I want you experientially to receive the love of Christ at Community Bible Church, and there's tons of it, I also want you to do the love of Christ while you're here. Do the greater works than Christ that John 14, 12 talks about from Christ's lips himself. And the great news is this. For all the love of Christ that is on display here, the tons and tons of the love of Christ that we know at Community Bible Church, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge, which is to say we can try to get it, but we'll just keep on trying and keep on trying and loving every day that we spend in the love of Christ. The Greek word here, surpasses, is hyperbalon. It means incomparable, beyond, hyperabove, surpassing. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul speaks of the surpassing greatness of God's power seen in Christ. In chapter 2, verse 7, he speaks of the surpassing riches of God's grace delivered to us. And in chapter 3, verse 19, Paul prays that we know the surpassing knowledge, love of Christ. The surpassing knowledge, love of Christ. Harold Honer says, the very fact that Christ's love expressed itself in his willingness to die on behalf of sinners is itself beyond one's comprehension. What's Paul's desire in this prayer? What's his desire with the whole force of this letter? What's his desire? For believers to be overflowing in the love of Christ. This is step two as we climb the staircase that leads to Trinitarian fullness. And it's a big and glorious step when you think about it. Paul's desire, Paul desires our strengthening in the power by the Spirit, leading to strong and growing faith, so that we desire to know and comprehend as much of the love of Christ intellectually and experientially that our little minds can hold on to. So that, he says, so that we as believers might arrive at this third step. The heights of heaven themselves as they were. The filling. The filling to the fullness of God. We see this as his third request in our notes. Paul's final request in this prayer of transition and mobilization and motivation. Point number three in your notes, Paul requests our filling to the fullness of God. Our filling to the fullness of God. We see Paul's third request in this staircase to Trinitarian fullness in 3 verse 19, where for the third time he uses this Greek preposition hina. It's called a hina clause to declare purpose. What is the ultimate purpose Paul has for us in prayer? 
He has said, I pray that God grant you. I pray that you are able. And now he says, I pray that you may be filled up to all of the fullness of God. Step three is to be filled and here to arrive at the fullness of God. How do you wrap your head around that concept? That's the expectation. Is that, is that we in the church, because of our faith and, and knowing the love of Christ, experientially and intellectually, that we can arrive at the fullness of God. How do I give you a sense of what that could possibly mean? Let's look at the word filled. Where else is the word filled in the Bible? Where does it, do, where does it show up? What, what is it doing when it shows up? You don't need to turn there. I'm going to take you to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint uses the same Greek word, plerao, to describe what happened at the dedication of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Immediately after Solomon prays his prayer over the, the dedication prayer of the temple, we read in, in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord, plerao, the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. The temple was made full, filled up, completely occupied, perfectly filled with God's glory. In the New Testament, we are told, it was the Father's good pleasure that all of His own fullness, plerao, dwell in the Son. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2, 9. And the church which is Christ's body, is the plerao, the fullness of him who fills all in all, Ephesians 1.22. Paul tells the saints of Jesus Christ's church to be filled, you, be filled with the Holy Spirit, plerao, Ephesians 5.18. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Ephesians 4.13. And consider Paul's expectation for the saints in the church. This is for you. We're talking about fullness. Fullness along the lines of the glory of the Lord filling the temple after it's been prayed over and dedicated by Solomon. Ephesians 4.13. Paul says that pastors and teachers are going to equip the saints for the work of service. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's where Christ wants you to go. That's where Paul knows you can go. That's the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. Did you know that? Do you know that when you walk in here, you know when you leave? This is the expectation. Just like Solomon's temple, we are being filled with the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul asks this eye-opening question. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, if you want to write it down. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And then Revelation 3.20. Revelation 3.20, who fills that temple? Revelation 3.20, Jesus himself says to the church in Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come into him and will dine with him. I in him. This is marvelous and amazing. This is beyond comprehension. This is the fullness of motivation, of purpose, of identity, that the old you can be thrown away, that the new you comes because of a seed of faith that God plants in you, that he will come and water along with you and till the soil and give the increase. What joy to know purpose and motivation and identity. This, brothers and sisters, this message, this prayer, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, this is a solid foundation on which you must believe, on which you must place your faith. We are the temple of God, where the fullness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit make their home. How are we supposed to understand this? Because this is God's plan. Let me run through the plan with you. Here's the plan. God's plan. From eternity past, God planned to elect us from eternity past, to redeem us from our slavery to sin, to give us a new heart and put a new spirit inside of us in which he will live. This new heart inside of us, he will strengthen by the power of his spirit, causing us to grow in faith, that we will be those who are pursuing knowledge of the love of Christ intellectually and experientially, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is God's plan, and it is glorious. This is Paul's prayer for Trinitarian fullness, to fill you with the faith and the love of Christ. With the faith of God and the love of Christ, living out the fullness of these two realities, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. Martin Luther lived with big faith and he lived with the love of Christ and he lived in the fullness of God. He prayed that way. He prayed bold prayers, Martin Luther did. Like Paul does here. He prays these bold prayers because of his strong faith. For instance, let me give you one of Luther's prayers. Luther had a friend named Friedrich Myconius. Friedrich Myconius was ill and he wrote a letter to Luther and he told Luther, hey, Luther, I'm about to die. I've loved our time together. I've loved our ministry together. But I'm going to die. I'm sick. And I'm not well. And this is not looking good. And I wish you the best. I want you to know my love for you. <laughs> Martin Luther's response, in, in his boldness, in his, in his ways, he says, he wrote him back and he said this, I command thee in the name of God to live because I have need for thee in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that thou art dead, but will permit thee to survive. For this I am praying, this is my will, and my will may be done, because I seek only to glorify the name of God. Apparently, God honored this request. <laughs> Myconius soon recovered from his illness. He lived six more years, and he died two months after Martin Luther. Martin Luther lived in Trinitarian fullness. He lived in the fullness of God. He had big faith. He was strengthened by the Spirit's power. He had all of the love of Christ. And boy, that man knew Christ with specificity. And he lived in all the fullness of God. How must we respond to Paul's prayer for faith and the love of Christ 
and the fullness of God. How should we think about Paul praying for us in this manner? With all these expectations in the text, I'd like you to reflect on these questions. I'm just going to leave you with these questions. I just want to pull you through these thoughts as we conclude our time. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Does Paul's prayer motivate your faith and your desire to know the love of Christ? Or are you content with the faith that you have and the knowledge of Christ that you presently have? What amount of time, effort, energy, resources do you commit to intellectually and experientially know the love of Christ? Or are your energies and efforts directed at the love of this world? Matthew 16, verse 18, tells us very plainly, Jesus Christ is building a church. If you look over the last course of 2,000 years of human history, and where you sit today, you should know this is exactly the way Christ planned it. And he's doing powerfully what he set out to do. Christ is building a church. The glory of God is in the church, in believers filled with the fullness of God, who pour out and gush out all over each other and all over this sin-sick world the love of Christ. Who prays this prayer for you? For whom are you praying this prayer? What is your relationship to Jesus' church? Are you a committed member and a servant? Are you a casual attender? Or is today your first day? Where are you going these days to strengthen your faith and to know the love of Christ intellectually and experientially? Who is praying for you? For whom are you praying? And for what are you praying? Pray this prayer of motivation. Pray it for the brothers and sisters at Community Bible Church. Pray this prayer for me. I need to be strengthened. I need my faith to grow. I need to know the love of Christ. I would love to continually experience the fullness of God. You pray this for me, and you pray for each other, and I'll pray for you. Father in heaven, our delight is to come together and to receive instruction from your word, to live this life together in community, to know what you have purposed from eternity past, the great love that you have set on those whom you deliver faith to as a free gift. Father, let each and every one of us, in our own measure, take the seed of faith that you've given to us and add increase and cause it to grow. Let us water. Let us turn the soil. Let us be faithful. And Father, we know we need to be strengthened in power by your Spirit in our inner man. Father, we know that we need Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. Increase our faith. Father, help us to be able to comprehend with all the saints, being rooted and grounded in love, what is the depth and length and height and depth and the width. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled up to all of the fullness of Christ. Father, 
to you who are able to do abundantly, exceedingly, beyond all we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever, and all of God's children said, Amen.